I initially intended to go straight to the Word of God today, but I wanted to give a short exhortation to our softball league. Uh, John Hahn uh, asked me, Pastor Ed, do you want to do you want to join the softball league? And I said, No, you know, I don't I don't play uh, any sports whatsoever. And he said, No, he said, No, it's okay. It's just for fun. We don't have to win. <laughs> Think about that. What that implies for a moment. <laughs> but. Um, uh, and so I thought, you know, it's definitely, absolutely, it's for fellowship. Uh, it's definitely, absolutely, it ought to be for fun. And it, it's okay if we lose. Honestly, it is. But uh, I, for, if I, I think I knew before, I had forgotten. It is to support missions. And so it is to support and pull in money, if possible, for the U09 team. So it is okay if we lose, but let's win. Let's, let's win. Let's win. I mean, you go out there and think of the U09 team, the New Hope Church, and let's get those missions funds into that fund. For that reason, that's good, good, passionate motivation. And when you, you know, trip people as they're trying to run into base, and when you push people over and slide, let them see the passion and let them know why you're doing it. Um, so just a word of exhortation uh, with that. I'd like to pray with you all and get straight into the book of Luke. And you are the invisible God. And you can't, couldn't be anything other. The eternal, immortal, uncreated God. And yet, in your Son and through the Spirit, you have made yourself known and visible to us who see you. We ask that through the many different forms and shapes of the Scriptures, that you would paint yourself in glorious colors, that you would be vivid, and that when we see you, it would not be a drab and gray image that blends into the background, but that you would stand out, that you would shine forth from everything. And we know of all the colors in which you paint your life, Jesus, that the colors of gold and the colors of red stand out the brightest. May we see both majesty and your mercy as we look and seek for you, God, this day. In Christ Jesus' name. I would ask you that you turn with me to the book of Luke. And this verses, which our brother Will just read for us in chapter 6. And it is a, a word to the church, a word to us, from Christ. And the words that he says to us, And let me just pick it up, actually, from verse 29, actually, just a little bit ahead of where we were at. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And this is the reasoning that Jesus puts underneath those words. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, meaning those who do not know Christ, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And that word that kind of punctuates those verses again and again is the word credit. In other words, if you only give to those people who are going to give to you, And if you only invite people into your home that can invite you into their homes, and if you somehow only associate those people that have the social credit to kind of give you back social credit to have status in the assembly, in the fellowship, then he's saying, what credit is that to you? And the reason why that word credit makes me pause is because the word in the original language, in the Greek, before it gets translated, is the word charis. And those of you who have listened to enough preaching, that is one of the few Greek words that's going to be familiar to you. Charis, anybody just kind of 
Anyone know what that means? That word charis, some children have been named charis in churches. Charis. Charis. It is the word for grace. It is all over the New Testament. It means grace. And it is a favorite word of Paul to show forth the concept of graciousness. So used here in Luke's mouth, when he says, talks about what credit is that to you, almost as if it's something that is earned by you, it's kind of a strange thing. And so I thought, I want to examine and look at the way that Luke uses the word charis to see if it was, and every author uses, words have a range of meaning and every author uses them somewhat differently. And so the New Testament authors, by and large, don't use the word charis a great deal. The one who does use it regularly is Luke. He uses it a handful of times, mostly before chapter 6. And let me just, I'll just, you don't, uh, you couldn't turn there. Uh, let me just fly through them very quickly. These are the occurrence of the word charis before our chapter. And listen for the way and what, Paul, what Luke means by the word charis. When he says, the, the angel said to her, this is in Luke 130, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found charis with God. And actually, I'll just read the NIV translation since we're reading from the NIV. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's not credit, actually. It's, it's a favor with God. Luke 2.40, the child, Jesus, continued to grow and becoming strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke 2.52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's the word charis. In Luke 4.22, and all were speaking well of him, meaning, of course, Jesus, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Is this Joseph's son? So there was something about the words, charis-filled words of Jesus that made people take notice. It surprised them. They thought, is this Joseph's son? He's a carpenter's boy. Where are these words of charis coming out of his mouth? There was a charis, which is a divine favor that stood out that was in the words of Jesus. If we take that understanding of the word charis and rightfully put that now into our passage in Luke 6, when he says, when you act no differently, give no differently, love no differently, live no differently than people who do not know Jesus, what charis is there in your life? What divine favor and grace is known by you than therefore to be exhibited by you? Jesus assumes that there will be a gap between the way that we live and the way that other people who do not know Him live. And that gap, the wider that gap, the more the charis, the more the grace. That is in a sense rightly translated to our credit unto the glory of God. I think if you were to ask most people on the street, what do Christians believe? They would have some vague understanding. They would say something about, uh, you know, they, uh, Jesus, uh, something about the Bible, you know. Uh, they believe that, you know, quote, Jesus is the only way, and they get really arrogant. There's some vague kind of thinking of, I think I, you know, kind of heard, at least in the media, what Christians believe. Now, this is a more important question in some sense. If you ask people in the world, unbelievers, how do Christians then live? They would say something like this. Well, uh, I think, I don't know, they go to church. If you kind of tinker into their mind, in what way differently do they live from you? And they would say, well, I think they just, they live pretty, they're pretty much, they do the same things we do. They live the way that they do. They spend money the way that we do. And they, you know, buy things the way that we buy things. And we, they, they go to work like we've been. Well, they're not too different from us. There's not something so much distinct except for they go to church on Sundays. There is a great part of that. There is. Which means that we ought not to be people who are so freakish. So different, so Protestant jihadist that people, that people find us unapproachable and so I have no basis in which to relate to you. So there's a beautiful part of that where we look like them. We don't dress differently. We don't have to wear separate robes or t-shirts or whatever. We look like them. We have barbecues like them. We have, you know, like, you know, we do things with kids. Everything is, there ought to be that relatability. But what this text of Scripture calls us beautifully to is that if there is no distinctiveness, 
then all the church will ever gain the impression of Christians is, is they are those people who sit afar from us, who point fingers at us, and tell us how godless we are. And I think the world is tremendously tired of that. I think we are tremendously tired of that. But the only alternative is, is to just pointing a finger saying, look at how godless you are, you non-Christians, is to show them what people with God look like differently because of the charis, because of the grace and the favor that is shining on our lives. There is a reflecting quality by which people can see and are shown what life with God then looks like. Our vision statement, which was beautifully read for us today by Will, when we formulated that just a short uh, year and a half, two years ago, we, there was a little bit of a tussle over what words that we should choose. I mean, we only got a few words, like about 12, 15 words in which to say it. You know, you can't fit like the vision statement I want to make, create that whole, you can't fit that on t-shirts, actually. You can't put that on a website. You want a brand, you want something succinct. So every word, every word was critical and important and had to be able to be unpacked and say something just the way that we wanted to say it. So we chose this word broadcast, and it is a muscular word. And what that word broadcast means is that there is something which is aggressively, intentionally, potently, brightly shining forth. If we so blend that our lives are indistinguishable from those who do not know God, there is no broadcasting. Broadcasting of the kind of light of Jesus, of the light of grace, only occurs when people say, I would never have done that. I have no idea. I mean, that's just weird. I mean, in some ways, you're just like me. In some ways, I cannot get to how you possibly did that. Consider if there's a church in our area, about, let's say, roughly our size. In other words, we're not a big church, roughly our size, a church. And so therefore, with the limited resources of a church of our size. And what if you found out that this church had a burden for a people they never met, never even saw pictures of, really, and wanted these people so much to know Christ, and so much that there would be a flame of witness that blazed up in that far distant region, and in order to do that, that it was going to take monetary resources that it needed to be funded or the Word of God would not go forth. And then what if these people then took some of their capital expenses to the tune of $25,000, shipped it overseas so that this work could be funded? What if then there was, on top of that, a free will offering where some of the leaders of the church stood before the church and said, this is not by any means legalism where you are being forced to do this. But if it is in your heart, if you are willing, would you give so that people who have no witness, no churches to even go to, may have a chance to hear the gospel? And then what if these small group of people responded and gave of their income $18,775 so the final giving could be $43,775? Would that not broadcast something different? Oh, you know, that's, that's our church. That's us. You ought to look around at each other with smiles. We, that was our collective giving. I love our $25,000 that we gave overseas, but I treasure all the more, I love all the more, the 18775 that you all gave freely. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Don't do these things in fundamentally be praised. And so I don't think that we should go out of our way to let people know, to boast in ourselves that this is how much our church gave. But I think should they happen to find out by some checkbook left unattended somehow or a database, I think that is a good thing and falls into the other commandment that says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to God. You can be sure that I'm going to tell my parents. It's not to say, Mom, Dad, this, look at how wonderful we are, how great, how great we are. It's not. It's to say, look, Mom and Dad, look at this. This is Jesus in the midst of our congregation. This is visible, tangible, quantifiable love. And so... 
I am also thinking that it is not only a broadcasting here when people are thinking about money the way they are. I think it's also a broadcasting to, to initially it is to uh, the people that are on the other side of that is in Kyrgyzstan is Sung who sent us emails and let us know that right at the point that our 25,000 that first disbursement reached their shores, right at that point was when they had run out of money in the startup. They needed a total of $300,000 and whatever point they had in the startup, it ran out just as our $25,000 got there. And so the thing is, is that there must be there people in Kyrgyzstan, especially the people that he's you know, kind of working with and witnessing to, the indigenous people saying, okay, okay, so our startup money is gone, and do you know how we're getting more? And Sung is saying, I don't really know. I don't, you know. And I'm sure if there's anybody savvy there, they're thinking, what's your business model? I mean, what, what, what business school did you go to then? And he's going to say, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. That's, that's my business school. And so, well then where is it going to come from? And when they know that some church that they've never heard of overseas gave the amount that we gave, they will ask questions and they will start scratching their heads. These are non-Christians. That's the whole purpose of the venture. They'll start scratching their heads. Aren't there a recession going on? I mean, worldwide, and I know it's hit America. Every time I turn on the news and I hear anything about America, it's how people are saving money, holding on to money, not refusing to spend, not even for love of country. They will not put money into the economy. I've got to save this because I don't know if someone's going to take it away. What are these people doing? Releasing money into the kingdom for this venture. That's broadcasting. That's broadcasting. That people will take notice. It's a surprising thing. It cannot be done if we don't live lives that are different than those people around us. So I would like to move us into our second text in the book of Hebrews and take a look at this to flesh this out just a little bit further. And if you turn to the last chapter of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, and I'm going to start there ahead of you as you reach there. In chapter 13, there are these words which are the flip side of Luke 6. Luke 6 6 says that if your life is in a flat line that is nicely tapped into the exact towing the same line as everybody else in the world, then there is no broadcasting that gets done. And so there must be this thing, and the way that in the writer of Hebrews language that he puts it, is in verse 13, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. And so there is a place outside the camp. And so that outside the camp, what is the camp that's talking about? All this language that you have here in this book of Hebrews is from the Old Testament. And we're going to get to that in a second, but what that camp symbolizes, you'll see in a moment in the text for yourself, what that camp symbolizes in our world, it is the camp of comfort. It is when I'm camped out in my home, in my routine, in my spending, in my comfort, in my, what I'm comfortable with having in the bank, and what I'm comfortable in saying and risking relationally, that is my camp, that is my base camp. And there is in us, ingrained in America, a refusal to leap, leave the camp of comfort, to take one step outside. We enjoy, we accrue, we build our lives, and we camp here. And so, but Hebrews is saying that there is a good, good reason to then go outside the camp. And people don't take notice in the camp. Everybody lives in the camp. Once you go outside the camp is when people see you as distinctive, as special, as shining. And the words that we have here in the book of Hebrews in 13, as we back up a little bit, it is, has the Old Testament as a backdrop, as a reference point. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so it's talking about in Leviticus, so that there are the sacrifices done in the temple. And on the Day of Atonement, the sins are drained into this animal. This animal is killed and his blood is shed. That because this animal now is polluted by sin, it cannot be consumed. It must be thrown outside the camp and there burned, incinerated. In Jerusalem, there was the temple. And outside the city gate was this place called Golgotha. 
And after the atonement is done by these sacrificial animals, by these lambs, after their blood is drained for the atonement of the sins of the people, these polluted carcasses are now taken and taken outside. They cannot be in the temple. They are unholy now and thrown outside onto this garbage heap called Golgotha. And they're consumed and burned. And so it is against this backdrop that we read, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. So this Jesus now is in the temple. It figuratively, and his blood is being shed, and then he is now then thrown outside. It is why the cross could not be near in Jerusalem, in, within the city gates. The cross had to be there on Golgotha, at the place where there is an unholiness. That's where criminals go. That's where the garbage goes. That's where the unholy goes. So why then does the Holy Son of God, the only pure, have to be thrown out with the refuse and put into Golgotha, into the trash heap? Because that is where I was. When Jesus found me, I was not in the temple. I was living in the trash of my sin. So for love of me, he leaves Jerusalem and goes outside the city gate to the trash heap of my sin and joins me where I am and bleeds all over the heap of my sin until it is completely cleansed and consumed the wrath of God that should have poured out on me. When it says, then let us then join him and bear the disgrace he bore, it is with a fresh understanding in this book of Hebrews that I've come to it. When we think of the suffering of Christ, as we just did in Good Friday and Easter, we are right to primarily emphasize the suffering of physical suffering on the cross. We are right to say more than the physical suffering on the cross was the suffering of the wrath of God that belonged to me and you, that He Himself bore and drained away. We are right to put these things in that order, the wrath of God, the physical torture and suffering. But when these verses says that that is where he bore the disgrace, it is with fresh understanding, and we're looking at the book of Hebrews, that I see Jesus' march of shame from Jerusalem, the holy city, to the trash heap, with every step being reviled by men, looking at him as, you, you, who are you? You ugly, unholy, criminal thing that you are. And this being eternal that deserved the worship of every man, that what fits naturally to be received into the genetic makeup of God, if I can say it from God as Father, is when worship lands on Jesus. It just fits. It just fits. When the rocks cry out and the trees clap their hand, when oceans roar, when stars sing, and it is all in glory to Jesus, it just fits. And when there is disgrace, when there is reviling, when there is reproach thrown upon Jesus, there is an aching in Him. This man that I created to love me, whom I would love, is now bearing upon me disgrace, reproach, and there he suffers on Golgotha. This verses say then, because he would do this, and he would do this that through the power of his blood, and through the substitutionary sacrifice, meaning that he consumed the fire of God's wrath so that I am not touched by it. I am shielded. It passes over me. That he would do that for love of us so that by his blood he is making the people holy, is what it says. So then, let us, let us 
go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. Let us then go to him outside the camp. Let us then go to him. I can't read those words in the book of Hebrews. Then let us then go to him outside the camp without thinking of the Gospels. I don't think that we're intended to. Because the disciples, the twelve, whom Jesus poured his life ministry into, they stayed with him on Palm Sunday. They were there as he is being praised and adored by the masses as he enters into Jerusalem. The disciples are there and they're already picking out their room in the, you know, the, the, most, like the, the, the best places of the kingdom. But as Jesus then is kicked outside the city and is leaving Jerusalem, one by one they fall back and they say, I won't go with you is why that we sing our songs, do we not? He went there alone. He suffered and died alone. Because one after another, the disciples say, I was with you at this moment, but I can't bear the disgrace with you now. I can't bear the shame that you are bearing. Jewish culture is a shame-based culture. And they say it's a larger part of the Asian cultures are shame-based cultures. To tell you the truth, I don't know any culture that is not a shame-based culture. Shame affects every single human being. None of us want to be ashamed. And so as Jesus is going there, one by one, they begin to deny him. And so the writer of Hebrews makes it emphatic for us that a faithful Christian life simply follows Jesus outside the gates of respectability and understandability and status and is not afraid to lose status or respect in the eyes of men to gain the favor and the charis of God. It is always this economy of values that works its way in our deepest soul and negotiates the way that we navigate every decision we make. Which do we value more? The esteem of men or the grace of God? Which is more huge in weight in our scales? The status that people will accord us or the rewards that God gives to us in His kingdom? And Jesus, as He makes His singular march, leads the way for us. And so when earlier in the book of Hebrews, I'll just read this for us if for the sake of time. Hebrews 8.1 says the point of what we are saying is this, that we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. In Hebrews 9.12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So this is part of our litany of songs that we sing in our hymnology. That Jesus sits at the most holy place. That he sat down at the right hand of majesty. We put it in far less eloquent language in our modern songs, but it is faithfully there transcribed. You came from heaven to earth, and from the earth to the cross, and from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to the skies. Lord, I lift your name on high. From the grave to the skies. So Jesus goes to Golgotha already knowing, even as he bears the wrath of God and the physical torture and the rebuke. You sinner, you criminal, the rebuke of people upon the Holy God. He bears all that knowing already that his point of departure has come. And in three days he will ascend and be sitting down at the right hand of majesty. He is blazing away for us so that this verse extends and said, let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore in verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. The logic of those verses are these. If we do not bear the disgrace that Christ himself bore as he was going to the eternal city, the city of God, the kingdom of heaven, 
the throne of majesty, if we do not bear the same disgrace that he bore, the logic of 13 and 14 is then we show to the world absolutely that our enduring city, the kingdom that which we belong to, is right here, just like everybody else. You plant in, you invest, you root here, and so do we. You are planted here, and so are we. This is our enduring city. And so then the logic of 13 and 14 is the only way to show people that you want to make America into a paradise. I don't have to. Because I'm the thief on the cross to whom Jesus said, you're going to be with me in paradise. The only way to show people that for us, that we are broadcasting the majesty and mercy of God in the entirety of our lives, individual and corporate, unto the coming kingdom of Christ, is by opting out of the status and of the power play structures of this world in a distinctive way. The only way in these verses when it says that we, have a, we are looking to a city, a kingdom that is to come, that we have our faces forward to the future, is that when people can see that the decisions that we make in our life are not so that we are investing into the toxic short gain assets that are here, but that we are investing our lives, our time, our energy, our money in high-yield, long-term, God-guaranteed bonds that will yield for us eternal life. The applications these verses give to us then are, as we keep on going, then through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that confess his name. In verse 15, John, would you hand me that book that's over there? In verse, when it says that, therefore then, let us give a sacrifice of the fruit of our lips and confess his name. I think that that means that we put ourselves and follow Jesus' pattern of becoming a sacrifice And so part of the sacrifice, which necessarily is involved in a faithful disciple life of Jesus, when we follow him by taking up our crosses, one of the crosses that we neglect and we refuse, which in a small way deny him, is we do not make the sacrifice of the fruit of lips by confessing his name. I think James is absolutely right. Whenever you say the name of Jesus and it is coming out of your mouth sanctified, not as a curse word, as kind of like a desperate dire thing, but it's coming out of your mouth as a sweet thing and and you're confessing his name, Jesus, there will already be something of that that where people are saying like, okay, then you're one of those Christians and and all these things kind kind of going there. There's a disgrace that comes along with that. And so there is a sacrifice. And you understand the full meaning of that term. It means sacrifice, meaning that we give something, but it's temple terminology. It's worship terminology. That there's a sacrifice of that fruit of lips, saying Jesus, the name of Jesus, confessing his name, so that it costs something, but then it's consumed on a halter and goes to the glory of God. And I know that we have trouble believing in angelic beings. But I promise you, no matter who the people are kind of saying, what, what do you mean Jesus? There are angels who are at that point saying, cheering, saying, yes, he said it. She declared it. He confessed the name. The name of Jesus is being spoken there. And there's a tension coming into that word because the name of Jesus and the power of the name is being broadcast. So there is a confession of the name. And so there are two things here in these, in these verses as we move to application, and you have to see where you are in that. So there is a doing good, but if you are comfortable doing that, in other words, I, I'm comfortable giving of my time and energy in a distinctively Christian way so that people can see that it's about Christ. But every single time, every single time people ask me why, and every single time people like, oh, you, you spent your time on Sunday doing what? You were where on Thursday night? On, on, on Saturday? You spent your whole day where? 
it is so hard for you to say, Jesus, it's because of Jesus, or because of I'm a Christian. And so let me just put let me just put it this way, please. Let me take the imagery of this of the of the and recombinate the imagery of this of these words. So there there is a camp of comfort in your mouth, and your t- this is the gate right here. And the word of Jesus wants to go outside of the gate to where that person who does not know him, to that where that person in sin is. He wants to go there. And so we've got to confess it. It's got to escape out of our mouths. The word of Jesus must come out. And so there's a sacrifice of confessing his name. And as we read that in verse 16, and do not forget to do good. In other words, don't just confess his name. Don't just go sit and talk about Jesus, but you never do anything about it physically, actively, monetarily, time-wise. Don't forget to do good and to share with others. For such sacrifices, God is pleased. You can't help but hear Isaiah in that. The sacrifices, the fasting, the praise, this is pleasing to Jesus. Don't forget to do good. So in the arc of our overall series, we've moved from charity, which is just generous giving in the grace of God. That's awesome. That word charity actually comes from charis. It's charis in Latin, and then it eventually becomes charity. It's love expressed through monetary means. So then we're moving from charity then, but not just charity, not just pity. We move to solidarity. Words of Jesus, I don't just call you my servants anymore. You're my friends. And we don't just give money to the poor. We befriend them. There's charity moving to solidarity. And solidarity, we talked about justice. And now, as we close in these last two more sermons on this giving series, we're moving now into ministry. Into ministry. The doing of good in such a way of radicalness. And it means it, you must, you cannot do it within your current comfort zones. It means going outside of the camp, bearing the disgrace with Jesus, and moving to the places that Jesus moved. And so that is a costly ministry because there is no ministry that is not costly. And so, when you, I want to put... I want to subsidize or supplement the words when it says here, don't forget to do good and share. This is kind of the sacrifice of worship that God is pleased with. There ought to be a ministry that you have which so displays. This is what Jesus, this is what Jesus is like. I used to visit a church up in Vancouver and they spent too little time on the message. I think, my humble estimation, my opinion. Yeah, they did. But anyway, but they spent an extraordinary, and I mean that, extraordinary, like no church I've ever seen, extraordinary amount of time and just giving report to each other. And so they took a good 15 minutes in every, every Sunday. And people would just pop up. I mean, just, they would just pop up and say, okay, well, you know, as I'm doing this. And, and the church was about maybe like 150 or so. It wasn't larger than that. But somebody would pop up here, back here, and say, I'm doing this ministry to, I'm, I'm reading to, to uh, some people who are blind, and that's, that's my ministry. I, I devote five, six hours a day, and, and I was able to share about Jesus through that. And, and, then, and then that person would sit down, and, you know, every, and then people would encourage that person. Somebody else would pop up, and they said, well, I, I'm doing this ministry where, you know, I, I'm, fi- I'm hanging out with the homeless people that are out there uh, out on, uh, on, in Granville, and, and, and I'm, I'm hanging out with them and trying to get to know them. And, and, then, and then somebody else would pop up, and it's just like people, it's like ministry was not there up front, and whoever was up there, it was like people were like all around me. I, I just, my head just kind of going, what? And you, and who here does not have a ministry? And I feel like nobody, everybody has some form of ministry. It wasn't necessarily like a, on the church menu, they were a la carte. And so I want to give you a menu here. Uh, th- th- and so this is a book by, you know, uh, Tim Keller, uh, a, a good reverend friend, you know, across the way. And he wrote this book called Ministries of Mercy and Mercy, and it'll probably be at our resource table by next week if we know waging at all. Um, if it's not already there, actually. So Ministries of Mercy, get a copy of this book because if you're sitting there thinking, all right, now we've got two sermons left and I feel a stirring. I want to fan that, but I feel a stirring that I've got to do something, but I don't know what to, I don't know how. This is not a bad book to get, to take you right from ground zero to active ministry. Actually, he's so good and so thoughtful and so practical. 
This is how you do it. This is a biblical basis, and this is how you think through it. This is how you organize. This is how you get other people involved. This is how two or three clumps of people with the same burden for orphans or unwed moms or, or hungry people get together and say, I'm not waiting for the pastor. Let's just, let's just do it. If we've got to get a committee together, we'll never do it. You, me, the other guy, let's just go. And so he's got this list of ministries on pages 146 through 148. I don't think, in, as I hear that bell ringing, uh, I don't think I have the time to read them all. So, but I'm going to start, and then I'll start probably jumping. And I'll try to do it for the sake of all that time in the tradition of the FedEx guy. But there are ministries to the poor, homeless, alcoholics, drug addicts, mental disabled, migrant workers, working poor, unemployed, illiterate. There are ministries to single parents, widows, divorced, unwed mothers, defense children, abused, neglected, juvenile delinquents, learned disabled, disabled, physically disabled, mentally disabled, school dropouts. There's ministry to disabled, blind, deaf, mentally to other disabilities. There are ministries to the prisoners, the inmates, the sick, to the chronically ill, to the terminally ill. There's disaster victims, aliens, refugees, new immigrants, international students, child rearing, forgiveness, freedom from guilt. Uh, there's people who need purpose in life. There's loneliness, marital difficulties, sexual problems, divorce recovery, parent, child abuse, child abuse, ju- juvenile delinquency, injustice. Oppression uh, groups, uh, depression, internal and inter- interpersonal conflict, substance abuse, suicide, grief, stress, anxiety, problems of aging, basic literacy for adults, uh, education, career guidance, second language acquisition, social skills, nutrition, legal aid, advocacy, food, nutrition, shelter, housing, clothing, child care, elderly care, healthy care, safety, quality of life, and disaster response. Actually, that's, that is, I surprised myself. And uh, so you understand by what sacrifice I'm speaking at this current speed out of love for, for you all. <laughs> that's a huge list if we did that at any normal speed instead of at waging speed that, that is a humongous list I don't say that list to overwhelm you the last thing I want you to do is, is you'd be stultified and thinking uh, where do I even begin no the, short, the, the reason that we give that great list that he has that great list is twofold one it's because if we are not seeing need, it's not because we, they're not there in Westchester. And Mother Teresa had this great thing. Mother Teresa said that, the tur- that the, nowhere in Scripture does it say to the poor, go find the church. And it says, to the church, go find the poor. If we do not know where the poor are, and poor, I don't mean just physically poor, I mean poor in all these ways, I mean in literacy or in, in companionship, or the poor. If we are not finding, if we do not see them, if we do not know them, if our friends are not part of them, then it is because simply we have not looked. We have not followed the Jesus way of going and looking and searching until he has found and brought home. And so one is just simply to say that we got to look We've got to find. It's going to take some labor. It's going to take some disruption of your schedule and your relational comforts. We've got to go outside the camp and go and find. And then the second reason why that I read that huge list is because if you felt, if, once you slow down that list and you start piling through, what are the real options for my ministry, the way that I'm going to give of my time in all of my busyness and limited resources? If you, as you are looking through this list, and you can have this book, and you're looking at this list, if you're saying, okay, I, I, I don't even know what that means, and okay, I, that, I, I just, it's not, I don't, I have no burden for it. That, I just, I can never do that, and that's, that's really, just, it's not me, and that may or may, or may not be right to say though. But if you find yourself going through the whole list that way, saying like, I, I can never do that, and that, that no way, and, and there's got to be something on that big old long list. There's got to be something where you say, all right, that I can do. Or wait, 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 there's a ministry for those. Okay, I've always felt that in my heart. There's always been something when somebody said that word that something just kind of, something aches inside for that people. I, I've always felt that. I just never did anything about it. There is something on that list that uniquely locks and fits with your gifts, your personality, your character, your temperament. And of course, there's always some sh- uh, shaping that needs to get done in that interface, but there is something there for you. Every member ministry is what we're talking about here as we start bringing this series to a close. And let me make one last word of application as we finish. If you want to respond to these words of Hebrews of going outside the camp and bearing abuse with him, I just I, those three words just lit up for me is let us go to him go to him go to him he is not there in your comforts 
You want to know Him. You want, you want to have an experience, a relationship. You want to lock arms with Him. You want to be in His footsteps. You want to know Him. Go to Him outside the camp. A great, marvelous way to respond to those words would be go with Him to Ukraine, you owner. I can't think of it. just almost exactly. It's like, here's our camp comfort. And I, I mean, I understand how ministry works here. I understand, I know the language, I know the songs. This is comfortable for me. It's why I've come here. There, there's a whole country, and there's a whole ministry, there's a whole city, a whole group of people. Where there will be this experience of Jesus that will be new and fresh and challenging, bracing, exciting, cutting, convicting, where you're just offering yourself to Jesus Cut me up, open me, and remake me. Change my eyes, because the way my eyes are glazed over, I can't see you anywhere here. And sometimes that process of unveiling happens as you go and say, he, "I see him, Jesus. There you are. There you are." That happens outside the camp, outside our comfort zones, and. There's not a single member of either Ukraine team that we've sent so far that will not say that's exactly, that's exactly my experience of the Ukraine mission team. Exactly. Jesus was just every there. When we, we sing that song, you're uh, the air I breathe. I lived that for 10 days. I just, he was everywhere. There, those of you who have a heart for orphans, there, there, there's going to be more orphan outreach in this ministry than and, in either two UO uh, trips that we've had so far. There's going to be more evangelism. More, we, we're at a place now in our relationship with New Hope Church where I, I, don't, I, 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 I think I've shared this on a personal level that I've never shared this, I think, as a congregation. What we're going to do, and without, without recounting what we've done in the previous trips, what we're doing this trip is that we're linking arms with the New Hope Church in Ukraine. And last time we were there in Kremenchuk, we saw that those great, those, this great red square. Yeah, every city has one. This thing where they had the big communist rallies, and there's that statue of Lenin, Stalin. I don't know which one. I always get them mixed up. And those, those now that now post the fall of USSR, those red squares are never used. They don't. I mean, if they could, they would probably, you know, take down that statue. There's, there's this huge square, and people are just walking past it. It doesn't get used for everything, anything. And my, my hope is, and I, I don't know all the details, and so Pastor Sasha is going to have to find out if we can get, but my vision and dream is that to be able to get permission to use that square for an all-day evangelistic rally, set up booths where we have like different services and, and food and music during the daytime, and then the evening set up a, a platform where we, we have one of our dramas and worship and testimony and song. Or Pastor Sasha will give the gospel message and close by saying, and if you would like to know this Jesus come. Now, why can't you do that here? That would scare the daylights out of you. I think if we did, if we got that park across the way, like Liberty Park, and we did that, that would be something. But I will tell you something. I thought about this. Why does it feel so different, ministry here in Ukraine and in the U.S.? And I, I, I don't, it's a lot, way a lot to unpack, but let me just say quickly. It's because the gospel has come here to America. And if we are not careful, the gospel will go just like Europe, Western Europe. In countries like China, in Eastern Europe, in a lot of places in the world, Islamic countries, it is not scorched earth. It's not, the light has already kind of been there. It's just really, now a really dim kind of, like a like low-level light. It's darkness. And so then in a place like Ukraine, every single pool of light that we saw was not already on. It's kind of already lit. It kind of Christianized and now just kind of a little more light. It's like utter blackness. Utter blackness like the night sky. And they're like shining like a star. It's a whole new pool of Jesus that was never there before. That's the excitement of going on these short terms. Like, this is darkness. I mean, you go there in Ukraine, this is darkness. They kicked out the gospel way long time ago, and so they, in, in the communist regimes, and so they, it's not there. It's dark, totally dark. Not like here, totally dark. So every new pool of light, every new thing, like he grabs one of the street talking about Jesus. It's like, the who? Let that name. It's not, it's, it's, it needs to be said. And you do, and this light, you see it, it's like before... 
There was nothing. And like out of nothing, God creates. It's like now there's light, the gospel, and there's Jesus, and there's, there's what God looks like. And so we are assembling the team now, you and I. But I earnestly ask you to pray and say, okay, I have my calculations. You have to do that. It's just wisdom. But I also now take these calculations and I'm going to allow you to mess it up. I'm not going to say, God, don't you dare mess up the way that I planned out my life and my week. And my... This is, you're not going to touch this. I've got it all planned out everywhere. And, you know, I, got, I know what I'm doing. I, I ask you to take that now and say, crack it open. Let there be room for charis. Let people look at me and say, oh, I see it. I see the grace of God. I, I see it. Would you pray with me? Uh, we want to thank you for the privilege of professing your name. And it sounds sweet to our ears. And we acknowledge freely that when we speak your name, Jesus, that sometimes it fits strangely in the ears and the hearing of those who hear it. For they have, their ears are bent out of shape, God. And we ask that, God, that through repeated saying of your name, Jesus, and that when people can see our lives behind the confessing of that name, that that not only will be a word that grates on some people's ears or offends them, but that by the speaking of your name and by the conformity of our life to that name, that you would be using that as divine power to reshape their ears, to reshape then their mind in how they receive and think about the name of Jesus. How because of the sweetness of our life, the grace that is exhibited, the care, the compassion, and the love that is in our life, that they would re-examine and re-evaluate what they think about the name of Jesus. And so that we would make for you an altar upon which you can step forth into that life and say, and here I am, directly. If you would just open the door, I would come in and dine with you and you with me. So Father, we ask, would you recreate our speaking and our living? We offer you ourselves now in sacrifice, in Jesus' name. Amen.